I'm James McConaughey. I'm Andrew Wycliffe. I'm Brendan Pollock. And this is Podcast 60 on the Sunset Strip. This episode is called The West Coast Delay, which is not a particularly accurate title, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually just rewatched the episode, like, within the last hour to finish writing up my notes, and the, the West Coast Delay plotline happens almost entirely in the back like 10-15 minutes of the episode. I have a note somewhere in here that I felt like Millhouse in that one episode of uh, of The Simpsons, when are they getting to the fireworks factory? <laughs> yeah, um, so what, what would we say is the more central plot of this episode, then? Uh, it's, it's gotta be uh, the dumb thing with the baseball bat. Between. Yeah. Uh, Matt and Harriet. Yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. That does get to be the sort of final punchline. I watched it last night again too. Uh, mm-hmm. When he stares at Harriet as he's making the note to uh, what's his name, Simon, and um, Simon has to read it, and it's about. It's just. It's not a non sequitur, but it's closer than any resolution to either of the ongoing plot lines. So, but Harriet gets the look, and this is sort of the episode where Sarah Paulson starts defining the character. Like, so yeah, that's definitely the the big plot line on this one. Uh-huh. But what would you call the episode? The Bat? The bat, is, the is, boot, and the... Uh, broken window. The bat, the boot, and the broken go. window. There we go. Perfect. That's... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie, the broken window did get a laugh from me. I couldn't laugh this time, but the first time I rewatched this for the podcast, I did laugh. Yeah. It, I, I don't like the broken window. There's too much, like... There's too much winking at the camera during the setup for me like uh, I mean uh, yeah. should we just I don't know if I should we should we get into it and actually explain what happens in that scene or uh, we I think we should at least like beginning. give the setup yeah. and explain yeah start start with what's up with the bat okay so uh, the the plot line I guess begins when Harriet brings a baseball bat to Matt uh, as a sort of a peace offering, a show of good faith mm-hmm. to try and bury the hatchet and get some closure on their relationship. Uh, but it turns out that the bat, ha- the bat was signed by uh, Jimmy Baseball, uh, a baseball player, <laughs> <laughs> a fictional baseball player whose uh, character name is not important. Um, is he fictional? Was... I couldn't tell you. Neither could I. I looked it up when. Uh when we talked about doing this and I was like, oh, so I don't need to care about this at all. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't remember him being in any other episodes. <laughs> yeah, so he uh, he gave this bat to Harriet uh, when she sang the national anthem at the baseball game that was a 
brought up the singing of the national anthem, which was brought up in the pilot a ton. Uh, and he wrote his phone number on it uh, in order to, you know, he was asking her out, but somehow she didn't realize that. Uh, Did she? There's like, there's like a throwaway line where she like thinks is his jersey number, and I was sitting there. I I think I have in my notes like I can't tell if she's like being passive aggressive or if she actually just thinks that a jersey number is ten digits long. <laughs> yeah. I I think you're supposed to like. I think she's lying because like at the end of the conversation, she 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 reveals that. Um, she's invited uh, Jimmy Baseball to come to the show on Friday and like she's like yeah you know what I was lying about it but I'm gonna get caught so I'm just gonna tell you what's happening so like I you know you could I, I guess that one could go either way like either she really didn't has no idea what it is or was just trying to lie yeah I also feel like it was written on a weird spot but that might mean that's just me nitpicking so I don't actually care about that yeah, she so, also, like, you know, just genuinely could have not seen it, and then was just lying in the moment. I don't know. Mm. Well, I think we're putting more thought into this bit than Aaron Sorkin did. Yeah, a little, <laughs> little bit, because it's, it's over so quick. Like, it gives us our first, you know, laugh, but then it's over pretty quick. This is, incidentally, we have been, we will still continue to blame Aaron Sorkin for everything, in this show, but this is our first episode of the series that was not written exclusively by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, well, that's like a, a nice little it, bit of uh, meta. Was also commentary. There. It was also <laughs> co-written by a dude named Mark Goffman, um, who I've literally never seen any. People like the Umbrella Academy. He's he's on the he runs the Umbrella Academy. He runs it. Oh, okay. nice. He's the executive producer, yeah. He's the he's the uh, old man who runs the Umbrella Academy, and is uh, um he was on he was the showrunner for Sleepy Hollow, which show I never watched. White Collar, never watched it. Staff writer for West Wing, never watched. Okay. I mean, I I like the Umbrella Academy. I it was like it was a good show to sit down binge and then almost immediately forget. Uh, I'm I'm excited to or you know I'm looking forward to watching season two. It's not terrible. I like Ellen Page. I like Ellen Page. Ooh, Ellen Page is really Jeez. good in it. Okay, so um, we're still going to blame Aaron Sorkin for everything. Yeah, because... just assume that, uh, was it Matt Goff? Just assume that... Goffman. Goffman. Okay, so he got 90 seconds of... Uh, of... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and it was plagiarized. That, so... yeah, that would so be... That... that would have even been... That would be another good name for the episode, the 90 seconds. So that that leads into the uh, second uh, plot line, which kind of is the West Coast delay plot line, uh, which is that Matt has asked the writers' room for 90 seconds of content in their in their show, which is as it's insult it's an insult. Yeah, as as Ricky and Ron point out, is insultingly little. <laughs> uh, but then yeah they. Ricky and Ron ask the room for uh, help, and then uh, Ben Folds gives them uh, a bit, which is <laughs> it's insane that that's what Ben Folds is doing. He's just working in the writing room. It's not a very good bit either. I'm sorry. Oh God, they, no! It's terrible. It's, it's, mean... it's mean and ableist, and I don't know if I would have thought it was funny at the time. Like, maybe, I... but... God, it's terrible now. It doesn't work now. Yeah, I was trying to think if I thought it was amusing at the time, and I don't think so. I think 
part of uh, Studio 60 uh, justifying it to yourself is telling yourself it's not supposed to be funny. So it yeah. definitely wasn't funny, and now it just plays like, oh, this is this is what late night was like even 10 years well, so, or 15 years ago. So, so to skip ahead a little bit, um, so it turns out that this bit is plagiarized, and which... I'm I'm gonna we're gonna we'll 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 deal with the rest of the bat subplot in a moment, but I I want to like get this out of the way. So the the West Coast delay of the title is that they realize they've plagiarized this bit, and they're like we have to on the West Coast version of it like admit to that and own it, which and that almost like D.L. Hewley being super offended that he read a plagiarized bit is authentic. That's actually like an authentic emotion that a comedian would have. Oh yeah, they're like the they they all are acting like this is the worst thing that could happen. And that, you know, it is actually like this actually does feel like as much as this show feels like just overblown and self-important uh like and putting way too much weight on how uh you know, how much a dumb TV show actually matters, like uh accidentally plagiarize or like, you know, plagiarizing shit on on tv is is actually terrible <laughs> like these people mm. would actually be this upset about it yeah they, they hit that sort of crisis that they sort of the workplace crisis thing the west wing moments this is the closest they've ever gotten to you know fulfilling the promise of doing a live show or you know it getting you in their mindset yeah so I okay. I'm genuinely not sure about this, but is it weird that they're on the West Coast and they're doing a West Coast delay? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. that doesn't that I makes th- no sense to me. Like, because I think I, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know much about the mechanics of live TV. Yeah, they haven't addressed this, which has been a problem. But I was confused about it. Uh, with the first or second episode and then it turned out I was wrong about how it works so in uh, based on how late night works in uh, LA or in New York with the late night shows they film those like early afternoon right and then they edit them and then they air them in the various places so with this they're filming early to broadcast to their live performance must be the live performance to New York which would mm. be at 9 o'clock and yeah. then once it's done they play the tape to LA so yeah but it only took me 90 seconds to make that up and you'd think they could have found the 90 seconds in the episode to make it make sense instead of making it be like Oh, you're not smart enough to get this, but it's authentic, so you know, you don't get the jargon. You don't get to have, you know, the jargon explained to you, which is eh. I mean, they've by this point in the show, like I I I don't remember the pilot super well. Actually, I don't remember much about if they talk much about the show itself on the pilot, but like at this point in the show, they've basically dropped all pretense that it's not just SNL 
Like when they when they make when they're doing comparisons to like oh are people doing drugs in here oh well they did drugs on SNL they don't even like try to pretend but like <laughs> Studio sixty is its own thing yeah. it's just like it's just SNL we're just doing that in the uh, in the first scene where they're in the uh, in the writers room trying to pitch their ninety seconds somebody says they should make fun of Jordan and they're like well SNL has already made fun of her <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> They're not even, yeah, they're not even hiding it it's, anymore. And another thing about the writer's room, is the opening scene, is how hostile that would be to a new viewer. Like, those are none of the stars. Mm-hmm. We have no idea who any of them are. So, yeah, I, I mean, I actually am happier that Sorkin's giving up, thinking he's going to appeal to anybody new, but I like mean, I said, you could probably do is... a reasonably compelling below decks episode just about the writer's room but you'd have to actually be interested in the writer's room mm-hmm. to do that and the show is very clearly not this is the uh first time that we see um don tinsley's character i think who does have some um she does have some like a part later on like she actually does become a recurring character she's the the person who or she's the girl who um Suggests that they make fun of Jordan. Yes. Yeah, if uh, you know her from anything, she's from the original, um, from the the British Office. Okay. She was on. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, she was in the last episode too. So. Oh, they, she was. Okay. Yeah, they sort of slipped her in there. They, it, I mean, they are starting. Got you. Guys. It feels like they're they're trying to like, yeah, like. Start setting up further characters that they didn't have in the uh, in the pilot. There, yeah, that was my thought too. Like, this is one of the first episodes where I feel like they have, where they started to realize, like, oh, we have characters outside of um, Matt, Danny, Jordan, and Harriet. Like they, oh, wait, I that... think, like they give they give Tom like this really long monologue or like dialogue with Matt, which is. Oh, not yeah. the worst and his, scene. Yeah. It's it's a weird scene though. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from it. And he, especially because Tom disappears, like his whole exhaustion subplot is unresolved. Mm-hmm. Well, I think okay. Yes. Sorry, I actually I realized I just made a mistake. Uh, the actress's name is uh, Lucy Davis. I called her by her character from The Office's name, but I think they are setting <laughs> up because. Uh, um, Tom and Lucy end up like having a romantic plot that runs through the rest of the season and I I think that's what they're trying to set up with the whole like Tom thing in this episode like, oh, I forgot about he has an ex-wife apparently because Tom, Tom's plot in this episode is mostly about him uh, just sort of being deranged after a breakup is he's it, like the devil is it his on ex-wife or just shoulder, her basically I thought that she I, I was just tell, his girlfriend. I, I couldn't tell, honestly, if they were trying to indicate that this was, like, a divorce or just a breakup. Um, he does act pretty crazy. He's, like, he suggests... So after Matt gets the the baseball bat and decides that he is going to be a sane, rational adult about it... <laughs> oh, wait. Um, one of the things that Tom suggests is, like, go down to this... I want to say it's a strip club, but Ooh, I can't tell. It's it's confusing what this is supposed to be. It, the the bombshell babies. A, an, yes. 
I think it's supposed to be like an, an analog for the rockets. Yeah. But it doesn't look like it. No. No. And it's this weird, like, this was not, I don't think, ever popular anywhere. Like, it's a cabaret, but, like, with the Rockettes, and they tour or something? Yeah, there's mention, like, when they're introduced, it says that they're, someone says they're in town this week, so, like, you know, implying they're touring. And, yeah, um... I mean, I don't know anyone who's, like, psyched to see the Rockettes, but... They're, I mean, I know people who go to see them. Like, I know people who go to see them every year. But it's like it's not like it's something where they know the names of the women or anything. Just have them be a burlesque club. Just, just do it. It's fine. Or just a strip club. Who cares? Yeah, but that's like there's a scene. There's a scene where you can like you see like Matt is Matt goes to the the theater where they're performing and he's standing in the wings and you can see out onto the stage as they finish their performance. And it's like, I don't even know what you're supposed to, like, take away from the part of the performance that you see. Because it's, like, weird strip club energy. Like, they're, the girls are, are up on the stage dancing and the audience is, like, right at, like, right up against the stage. Like, jumping and cheering and, like, screaming for them. And it's like, what the f- what is this? But, but of course they're fully clothed because it's like it's a PG thirteen strip club, right? But they're not like doing. There's no. They're not like doing stripper dances either. So I'm not certain we're putting yeah. more thought into this than they did. Darn it <laughs> again. Yeah. yeah. The the yeah. end of this particular plot is that like Tom has suggested that Matt get one of these girls to like sign her boot for him, and then he can give that to um. Sarah Paulson's character as revenge, which is so stupid. The episode has to call it stupid. Yeah, in in the episode's defense, uh, it does repeatedly point out how dumb this shit is. I don't know. It does kind of like, it does kind of feel a little genuine in the like, aha, I've hatched this absurd revenge plot, and everyone keeps telling me that this is the dumbest shit that no one is going to think is clever or respect but you know i'm still hell-bent on doing it that feels genuine to me yeah i guess you're right yeah it's just a weird subplot um, yeah it, it's very non-committal like the episode seems like there's a handful of ideas that nobody wanted to finish <laughs> And I mean, right. if that's how Studio 60 is always going to feel, like, because last episode, I watched it again, and it feels like that, too. It feels like, we, we talked about, like, you have the first act, you're missing the second act, and then you have the resolutions. And so, if I, I can see why it didn't succeed, but for a late, um, sort of multi-actor workplace drama? You know. I think, to some degree, the the for, deciding to make it a 40-minute show instead of a half... or an hour show instead of a half-hour show means that they just have too much space 
to fill. Like, if they could chop it down to a half-hour show, you'd have a lot denser... Like, the good parts would be... You could just have an episode just of the good parts and not have these, like, weird interludes where Matt goes to a strip club. I don't know how much of it is they have too much time on their hands and how much of it is just that, like, this is kind of Aaron Sorkin's writing style. Like, comparing this to West Wing and Newsroom, like, it's, it's very similar. West Wing has a ton of plots that, like, like, basically every episode of the West Wing, they, you know, they... They pick their new political issue that they're going to discuss. They, you know, kind of set the table as to like, oh, okay, we're going to talk about school vouchers today. Okay, so basic explanation. What's a school voucher? Why is it good? Why is it bad? And then the conclusion is, well, we're going to need to like just real, really hunker down and talk about this and just like get some debate going and, you know, make the best educated decision. And then, you know, the show just never revisits it. And then you just, like, you know, repeat that for every... Repeat ad nauseum for every political issue you can think of. Well, we should really think about this. Now we'll get back to it. Like, so just that sort like of, like... Torture. <laughs> that That pattern of just, like, introducing a thing and then never coming back to it is something that, like, is just very Sorkin-esque to me. And it, yeah. It also, that... yeah. It also shows up a lot in the newsroom because of, the newsroom is, like... Just, straddled with being stuck in it's it's set more in reality than the rest of his shows where they're like oh no we've discovered this problem and we need to talk about it but the problem never actually got fixed in real life so we can't actually you know uh we we can't actually have it get fixed so we just need to drop it and move on but that's sort of like the the difference between this episode and like the last episode which did really have the problem of like so what what are we where are we going with this is that there is actually, at least in the final ten minutes, there is actually, like, here is our problem, we have to solve it, and there's, like, some tension to that. And then they kind of blow it on the landing, but that's beside the point. Yeah, they solve it by having it turn into a non-issue, but, yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) We'll Uh, get there. So where were we? We We were still talking about the bat thing. Okay, so we've got the bat thing. Oh, uh, very important, uh, I have a very important note about Matt and his trip to the strip club slash theater. Uh, this is... Go ahead. It, it's just a weird bit of acting. Uh, Matt is standing, okay, so he's standing in the wings, he asks this, like, stagehand if they've got a pen. They hand him a pen. Matt's wearing a t-shirt and a button-up shirt. The button-up shirt is, like, it's, it's open. And he takes the pen... And he sticks it inside of his shirt as if it's a suit, like as if it's a jacket that has an inside pocket. And then the scene goes on. So Matt has pockets on the inside of his button up shirt, and I want a shirt like this, actually. I want a shirt that has. <laughs> I, say, like, I need. I want more 100% pockets. 100% on board. 100% on board with that, yes. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just like. It's. It's just, like, a little weird mistake, but, like, it just stuck out to me, like, what the fuck just happened? There's no pocket right there. Uh, yeah, okay, I sorry, that I was, that, but that was go, my but... final note about no, this it's fine. Up. I will No, my, my thought, I, my only, like, note outside of the baseball bat subplot is that there's a, a runner, I don't, I don't want to call it a, a subplot or a cul-de-sac, because it's through the entire episode, but there's, like, a running thing where um, the jo- Jordan has, like, invited this 
writer from Vanity Fair to, like, hang around the show. And I don't know, it doesn't really, like, I think she's the one who finds out that they plagiarized the bit. But aside from that, she's just kind of there. Yeah, I But I like I her don't... a lot. I don't remember for sure, but I feel like this is also being set up as a, a running plot line throughout the season that she's going to be around. Because they, like, they introduce her as if she's going to be a recurring character because they're just like, oh yeah, she's going to do this, uh, she's writing this piece, and she, she basically just says like, oh yeah, I still need to be uh, in DC, but I'll just, like, drop in randomly. It's like, here, let me just set up that my character can be in an episode or not at, you know, at any time, and it's fine. Don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I like the actress. She's she's fun. Yeah, and this is... Um, oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Uh, this is... I think I mentioned it a few episodes ago, getting ahead. Um, this is where you hear about the Vanity Fair readers being worth five of the studio 60 audience members tv viewers in terms of ad dollars and that of course is what like got studio 60 uh ordered was that those you know the vanity fair readers were the uh west wing watchers and the office watchers to start like that's that's what saved those shows and got them to be around long enough to have other people watch them. It's kind of funny. Is that why they're is that why they're kind of jerking off Vanity Fair in this I'm episode? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like Sorkin would have said no to them wanting to go do an episode, uh, an article about uh, uh, Studio Sixty, especially when uh, Bradley Whitford introduces her, and there's the funny bit about uh matthew perry being uh a teenage boy at heart while bradley whitford's the grown-up one but uh Um. when he comes in and he's like yeah she's gonna write a long lead feature on the show for vanity fair and you're just like i i don't know what a long lead feature is is it a vanity fair (laughs) article that and i'm like it sounds important I have a writing degree. I never used that phrase with that. Like, we never talked about that. So it's like, yeah, it's it's him doing the jargon again. It's it's Sorkin being like, yeah, look what I know. Yeah, this, this is this, it was this particular runner where Jordan is like, is like, hey, I'm going to show this writer around SNL. Y'all aren't doing drugs, are you? Just uh. like, what are you talking about? Of course they are. And of, it's the, like it's, of course uh, it's one of the reasons. Good. It's it's one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons why I was like, you're having him go work for an SNL analog when he's accidentally relapsed on coke. SNL is the most coked up TV show on ever, ever. Uh, you go. Ahead. Yeah, and it's like, of course, like Danny in his like role as Aaron Sorkin. Uh, as Eric Sorkin mouthpiece has to be like, of course we're doing drugs. Drugs are good, actually. <laughs> Which, you know, drugs yeah, are fair. good, actually, but... <laughs> but don't write a character to say it. And they were never going to show it, so... Uh, I, yeah, have, so... I have another, like, almost nothing point about um, this, the Vanity Fair uh, writer... When she's introduced, it starts out they're in um, their Jordan and her are having dinner at the uh, the 
like the executive dining room at their headquarters and jordan mm-hmm. makes this uh, off comment about like well you know i figured if i was gonna have everyone work late i might as well provide them with dinner and mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's supposed to be i guess it's supposed to be like showing uh, like jordan as being this like good magnanimous leader that she's like you know doing this good thing for her staff and you know providing them with dinner but like the kitchen doesn't just like the kitchen is run by people you're at, you're making people like <laughs> she's just she's making the kitchen staff work late to to treat the executive types like that's not good jordan you're terrible <laughs> uh, there's so much yes. of that like i just because of like uh because of how terrible the west wing is uh with its politics i can't help but sort of approach studio 60 with like a overly political analysis and just sort of like keeping an eye out for sorkin letting his bad politics sink in and that was one that like kind of stuck out to me as like hey uh sorkin probably doesn't realize that the kitchen staff are real people the food just sort of magically appears what are you talking about yeah um what else, what happens next? We we've okay. totally yeah we're lost. we're all over. We've we've introduced all three of the main plots uh, and then and jumped from each one, kind of basically in the order that the show does. So we're actually yeah, yeah so we, we're more we, on we track just, than we usually are. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 finish talking about the the Harriet okay. subplot because it kind of resolves itself first. Um, although um, I do have a note here. Who the fuck is Juliet Lewis and why is um, Harriet playing her funny. Wait, you don't know who Juliet Lewis is? She's an actress. I know, oh, I know she's like an actress, but I don't know why her why. Well, because I was why, watching it and I was jo- like, nobody would get this. Um, yeah. She's, <laughs> and yeah. like, it's just it's so mean spirited. She was in a Natural Born Killers and Cape Fear, and. Yeah. She sort of fizzled out by. So she. Cape Fear was 92. She fizzled out by like 97 at the latest. Like. I don't know what. She's. I think she probably does TV now. Um, but they. She constantly got made fun of for being um, like flighty. So they're, they're making fun of her being flighty. To the point that, like, I have no idea if Juliet Lewis is actually flighty. Like, I, I only remember the jokes. Okay. I just, I could like, I knew she was an actress, and she's, I, I've seen Natural Born Killers. Of course I have. I was a, I was a 19-year-old film nerd, too. Uh, but, like, I couldn't figure out why that, why, like, was there something I'm missing here? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently there was, and it's just not a particularly good joke. It's just that, like, Aaron Sorkin's, like, he's... His comedy is, uh, like a decade old. Yeah, there you go. So, like, the the, the Harriet subplot is, like, we, we already mentioned that, um, she's bringing the baseball player to the, um, show. They kind of, like, shout at each other about it a bit, and the kick, the, the rocket girl, like, tells her, or either the rocket girl or Tom tells him, like, just go kiss her. The rocket girl and, tells tells Matt to do that. Okay, so that's a little that's a little better than Tom telling her to do it. 
which is like six different forms of like, no, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Uh, the the exact phrase that she uses is grab her and stamp her down, which uh, it's even worse, Oof. actually. Oof. A man wrote this, you say? <laughs> Two men. Two men wrote it. What are you talking about? So he's like, he's like about to go storm in and do it and like kiss her. And then she's kissing the baseball player. And then the subplot just kind of ends because the West Coast delay subplot is like, oh, now we have to do something. Yeah. Oh, we, we missed the part where uh, Matt breaks the window. Uh, bef- yeah. Oh, yes, we did. Be- before that happens, uh, he's just got the baseball bat just sitting in his office now. And uh, Danny comes in to, like, invite him to lunch or something to talk about it. And Matt says, uh, it's like, I can't leave. I gotta, I gotta, you know, make funny things happen. Can't just wait for them to happen. I have to make a funny thing happen, he says, winking at the camera. And he picks, he's, you know, he's holding the bat while he does it. And then he puts it over his shoulder and sits down in his chair and leans back and into the window. And the bat shatters the window. It's a pretty fragile window, frankly. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. That did get a, a laugh from me. I'm not made of stone. It's. It's a little too. It's a little too in love with itself for its own good. Much like the show as a whole. But it, it, it was okay. It's better than a lot of other jokes in the show. What What really like just killed it for me is the the very next scene. Uh, is Simon is in. Uh, Danny's off or Simon is in Matt's office and he's mm-hmm. making jokes about breaking the window which it's like okay yeah we did it it was funny when he broke the window I... yeah that's you're right you're not wrong there uh, although I you know I, I do want to point out the, the one joke that did get me to laugh uh, that I actually think is a good joke uh, in this episode when Tom is giving uh, Matt bad advice uh, he says, uh, it, "You need a wing. Or, what you need is a wingman, and you've always been there for me." And Matt just looks at him and is like, "What? I I've never." I was like, "Have I?" And Tom's like, "Well, you know, you could start." They they also keep they also keep referencing and, this yeah. like playwright that I'm sure is is like more fa- is like more famous than I'm aware of. But I think the joke is that like is the joke that it's a pretentious thing to be referencing or. Is am I missing something there? I don't think it's a joke that they're uh, being pretentious. They're talking about August Strindberg. I think it's just that Aaron Sorkin is a pretentious asshole, and so like it, you know, in his mind, uh, you know, the smart, educated the... people talk about the classics. So yeah, the um, the David Spade of Studio 60, you know, just like David Spade. He sits around and talks about August Strindberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who can who can forget yeah. Saturday Night Live's uh, famous death of a salesman sketch? <laughs> uh, no, I, it's like, I think that most, I think most Americans have at least heard of death of a salesman. Yeah, death of a salesman I have, is, like, is less pretentious than August Strindberg, that's true. Yeah, I've I don't know much about August Sternberg, but based on that name, I'm gonna say like he's probably Scandinavian. Let me look. I'll look. I'll. You say his name is August. Yeah. August Sternberg. He is Swedish, and died in 1912. 
Okay. So it's just, so it's just a pretentious reference we're making, and that's not the joke. Okay. okay. So all right, he died in 1912, so that means that you know he was around when uh, Sorkin was forming his humor. So <laughs> makes sense. It's like <laughs> makes sense why you would. I mean, he him. was he was contemporary with uh, the greatest fat comedy in the world. <laughs> That's what we call a callback. Just um, us getting mad remembering <laughs> jokes we hate. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, so the the end of the Harriet subplot is just she's kissing the baseball player, and then it turns out they stole a joke from some stand-up comedian, and that's just the plot of the episode now. Yeah, the they got to the fireworks factory. Matt Matt walks in and he he knocks over a suit of armor. Very, you know that that actually is kind of funny that he he sees them kissing and then just immediately smashes into a a big suit of armor and tell, lets everyone know that they're there or that he's there. Uh, but then he he gets whisked away before that can resolve because you got to deal with plagiarism. So the the way the plagiarism subplot uh, resolves we, itself. Should we just jump onto the plagiarism then? Yeah, because I, I don't know what else there okay. is. I mean, once you're done with the Harriet subplot, there's just like that's it. The the Jordan subplot doesn't really yeah I guess like I except she she has a Vanity Fair writer there, but her larger meta plot about her ex husband does not budge an inch in this episode. Other than they like briefly mention that other comedians have been talking about it, which is again like I feel like. I don't watch late night comedy, but I do occasionally. I have been known to watch SNL. I don't really think they make jokes about the head of television at NBC. Uh, uh, I, that's just. I I can only. I don't know who. I can only think of. One I don't know who that is right now. Of a joke about a head of television, uh, which is in in Thirty Rock. There's a joke about um, Kenneth. Uh, being friends with a homeless guy who he calls Moon Vest because the guy wears a vest that has a moon on it. And then Kenneth yes. is talking about his friend Moon Vest to people, and they all think he's talking about less Moon Vest. Uh, which is a it, it, that's a funny joke. <laughs> but yeah, that, yeah that's it's a solid like joke. a joke that, like, hey, this, <laughs> this guy has a funny name. <laughs> but yeah, it's not I mean, a joke. 30 about, Rock could like, also get a. Oh hey, he's a sexual predator. <laughs> yeah, the the head of the head of NBC, like the head of television at NBC is a character on like in universe is the character on that show. So that's why they make jokes about him, but that's the only like reference to a real life person in NBC that I can remember who isn't like um, a Harvey Weinstein Field. level of famous. Um, yeah. Seinfeld had the plot line about Warren Littlefield, but and it's possible Jay Leno might have done stuff like that like he, it, I imagine he is just that unfunny yeah I think Leno probably like Letterman's gonna age weird um, especially with female guests I imagine <laughs> but um, like Le Leno with his whole like I'm apolitical thing but all of my jokes aren't type stuff like i bet that age real gross um i i, I was re i got disney plus for a month because my partner's mother wanted to watch hamilton you know uh 
And so I've been, like, watching through some of the seasons of The Simpsons I don't own on DVD, and I got to this episode about how Krusty's, like, act is washed up, and seeing Jay Leno being, like, posed as a more, like, real, authentic comedian is really funny to me. (laughs) I refuse to believe anyone ever thought he was, like, real as a comedian. Did they? They did, didn't they? Uh, he was always... No, I mean, he was never legit, but then he didn't have to be because Letterman, he wasn't a stand-up, right? Like, Letterman I guess you're his right. way up through TV, didn't he? I can't remember. But, um, no, I mean, Leno was like a punchline, but you would actually run into... Oh, wow, I sound so old. Yeah, you'd run into, like, <laughs> diehard Leno, the comedian people, in, you know, 1993. Or you'd read about, Woof. like, ni- uh, Jay Leno fans and things. Like, yeah, it was a... Like, him getting... When he got The Tonight Show, there were people who were like, no, he should have gotten it. He was, he was great. I guess there was. I guess 30 Rock also did do an extended uh, re- joke... An episode that had an extended subplot that was a like a parody of the Conan Leno thing, but I don't know if that counts as referencing a an executive just an executive at the company. Yeah, that was real popular too. Like, it was it was it was a really weird moment in television history. Yeah. Um. But no, I mean, certainly none of none of the people you would want watching Studio sixty would think that that was like a real possibility of like a stand-up or of a late night show doing comedy on it's it's just such a weird show in that like Sorkin's writing it for a very specific audience but nobody seems to agree with him that they're only going for that audience because it's so limited like it's Uh you know the it's real by the what is this we're on the fourth episode it's like a show for sorkin devotees already four episodes he's he's writing for the uh the vanity fair reader who's worth five times as much as everyone else yes the vanity fair reader who loved the west wing and thought it was unfair that he got fired i mean so so we i am trying to look at like studio 60 in the context of, like, a larger show that's going to get cancelled. Uh, spoiler alert for our listener, I guess. Um, and, like, I feel like... I, I don't I don't know what Studio 60's budget was. I know it was really expensive, and that really contributed it to getting cancelled. But I do feel like for, an ep- for, like, an hour-long show, episode four or five is usually around the time they're like you have to start figuring like you have to start figuring out what you're about at this point like like my other major review series is i'm reviewing the x-files and the fourth episode of the x-files is the one with the stretchy guy who attacks scully out of the vent and that's a really great episode to be having that early in your show that's the fourth episode that is the fourth episode wow that's crazy squeeze is so good and and i (laughs) know And I know that, like, the X-Files is really unfair because it found its feet super fast. But even, like, Buffy, which is, its first season is terrible, was, like, getting on its feet at this point in its run. And I don't think Studio 60 has figured out what its, 
what it's doing yet. No, and uh, spoiler, what we're gonna see is that sort of like last episode, this episode, and maybe the next two are all um, sort of the style is similar. Then it's gonna have an abrupt change um, like where I think they don't even include the Studio 60 logo at the beginning anymore. They get rid of the um, title cards, I think. At least, well, they've already gotten rid of the mid-episode title cards. Remember when we had that? Now we've gone mm. to just um, time uh, subtitles. Mm. And then it's going to change again to try to get more accessible. And then I think by, like, episode eight or nine, so when we would have been into the next year that it aired, they'd given up on um, getting any new viewers and they were just finishing it out because it was like more expensive to cancel it or something like yeah so back to our back to our plot recap so uh we got really off topic there um so the 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 plot that kicks in right here is that they discover they've they've um plagiarized or the writer who pitched this um bit of like bit of dialogue for the news desk I think it is um, has plagiarized it from a stand up comedian and they're like we gotta fix this before it goes out on the west coast and then it turns out that um, they've played that that comedian plagiarized it from another comedian uh, and then at the very like the last ten seconds of the show it turns out no that comedian that comedian wrote it when he was working with with Studio Sixty before Matt and Danny got there, and so they didn't actually plagiarize anything. Yeah, I I have no idea what they're trying to do with this subplot. Like, is it? It's just such a weird way to like diffuse this and then I mean, turn it into a non-issue. Well, it's rewarding them for acting with integrity right like it's Sorkin yeah I mean it's it's rewarding them for acting with integrity it's like a uh, fairy tale like <laughs> you know Danny and Matt um, and everybody it, they're gonna learn their good lesson because you know the shows what's annoying about Studio 60 but also I guess something I enjoy about it is just the absurd earnestness of everyone so you can uh-huh. like you know throw them yeah can, it, yeah I mean it's it's a dramatic cop out but the other dramatic cop out I just realized uh, what if the writer in the room what if Ben Folds was going through old jokes and stole that out of the Studio 60 file that he clearly has access to and was trying to promote it as his own joke, yet somehow this other guy also saw it. Yeah, like, that's that's kind of... Okay, so, I guess two things on that. First, I don't actually think it works as a moral tale because, because it, like, ends up that um, they owned it to begin with. Uh you end up in a situation where not doing the right thing actually also would have ended up being the right thing. Like, 
if Matt and Danny had to just stay quiet for like if they had to just follow Jordan's advice and just said you know wait till we get legal on the phone and figure out what we need to do to protect ourselves they would have figured out that it belongs to this other guy before they made any announcements and then they never would have had to like you know they never would have had to like interrupted the feed so like yeah mm-hmm. it kind of I, I don't think it quite works as a moral tale because because of that uh, but you know I, I do agree with you that like I, I think that one of the one of the main things about this show that really does work I do love how like just dumb and earnest it is uh, but I don't think it quite works in this case and also yes I also yeah I really agree that like if they, if this wasn't happening in the last 10 minutes of the show if this had happened with like or like if this not even 10 minutes that happens in the very last scene of the episode like if they had 10 minutes to like sit on that and then go talk to the guy and like you know do anything with it that also could have been good but they don't it, it's also well, worth also, pointing out that since it does sorry no uh my, my joke is just that it's worth pointing out that this this bit that everyone's like yeah this is funny we should do this it turns out that joke is at least 10 years old at this point <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's a good point yeah because they say he, yeah he wrote it in like was it 91 91 yeah so that's yeah. 13 years it's like 15 uh, good lord um so that's uh the other thing is it does let ricky and ron get to be good guys because they're not going to give up the writer they're going to take the blame for it take the hit but then also give matt and danny the opportunity to be uh more magnanimous by not demanding their yeah resignation it's like does sorkin plot these or is it natural like just the um i mean do you want do you want the absolutist response or what i think sorkin would say I'd rather know the truth. Does... The absolutist response is that, of course, he pots it. That's how writing works. No, it's not. I mean, it doesn't have to. No, like, be. It doesn't have to be. But like, there's this, there's this one interview that I with um, a video game designer who uh, I know Brandon is also very familiar with. A guy named David Cage. Oh God. Yeah, um, David Cage is the like... Aaron Sorkin of video games. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. Uh, um, and he's he's like talking about this this subplot one of his games where um, a major component is this little girl getting abused, and he says like you don't sit down to write. Um, imagine I'm doing this in a terrible French accent. You don't sit down to write a story about abuse. It just comes out naturally. I'm like yes, you sit down to write it. Like maybe you feel like that's the natural way for your story to come, but ultimately the choice to leave that in there is yours, even if you feel it's natural. So. Like, I think that Aaron Sorkin would say that he, like, just writes what comes naturally, but okay, I so don't... Okay, so no. I'm, I, I don't disagree with your point, then. Um, I was actually being more specific in, does Sorkin sit down and go, okay, so at the end of episode four, we are going to have Matt show this degree of forgiveness toward Ricky and Ron which will then show, you know, express itself as this much of a boost for his character, whereas Bradley Whitford's only going to do so much. Like, 
is he that stringent with the character development? Because that is the sort of minute character development that runs through the episodes once it gets settled, like once Simon's backstory is he was a stand-up comic and not on the rugby team at Yale Drama, which isn't going to come up again or whatever. Um, is Sor Does Sorkin pay that much attention to it, or is it just bullshit? Like, or does he just go, oh, I, I think I've got it set up enough that I can have this, like, teeny morality lesson laid over, you know, Matt's behavior, and he I... only has to think about it then? Or, like, does he put... Is he obsessive about the Sorkinisms? I think it's bullshit. I think he, like, has a... Uh... Like, maybe a... Like, if anything, he has a, like, high-level outline for, like, what should happen in the series. Like, you know, Ricky and Ron are eventually gonna get... They're eventually gonna leave, and so, you know, they're just kind of these assholes who we have to kick around for a while, and then they're gonna move out on their own. But, like, I don't think he's, like actually plotting because there's there's just too many like little inconsistencies like even already we've seen like the the ways that the ways that like the parallels between the ways that matt and danny act and uh ricky and ron act are like absurd like they they kind of betray that no one has really thought about this thing where like like you have ricky and ron showing up to be like yelling at the actors and telling them like oh you got to do your best or we're gonna fire you and like that's like framed as like this reason to hate them when like at the same like previous episode it was danny in the same spot saying yeah. literally yeah. the same thing like he's a complete prick yeah yeah, yeah but we're supposed to love danny speaking yeah. of terrible things uh, danny does danny fucking assaults ron in this episode yep. he throws him against the wall when he finds out that the um that the thing is the plagiarized. Bit was plagiarized yeah. yeah. And let's not forget that when uh, Matt is running to kiss Harriet without checking with her about consent, uh, Tom is like, "No, man, it doesn't matter. She works for you. It's all good. Like, go for it." Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yes. God. And then yeah. we find out that Darren Wells, the I'm sorry, Joe Baseball, kissed her for a photo op. <laughs> without her consent either and jesus christ she was also was she described this episode as um believing the world was made in six days yeah I think yeah it that's was episode, when he's yeah. watching it and you're just i'm just sitting there going this character is so broken like sorkin cannot crack this like no wonder it didn't work out with Kristen chenoworth but it's amazing that Sarah Paulson can bring all this shit in and like contain it. Like this, yeah, this last, uh, the last episode in this one is when I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get the Sarah Paulson good chills again. Sarah Paulson has an excellent line in this episode where she says, um, she's talking about Matt and she says, uh, the only way he can have a conversation with people is if he gets to write the dialogue for both sides. And I'm like, that is a hundred percent something Kristen Chenoweth said to Aaron Sorkin. And he was just like, Hey, I can use that in my episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
Like, does he have a notebook that he wrote it all down? Like, <laughs> yeah, just, hey, this is a good line. Just totally, like, un, like no self-awareness. <laughs> just like, hmm, good dialogue, thanks. Yeah, I don't... Sarah Paulson is doing, like... And I do think the cast is really good. Um, I don't like everything that everyone on the cast has been in, but they're uniformly really good. And I think all of them, but especially Sarah Paulson, are doing so much work to take these really inconsistent bits of characterization and like hammer them into something that feels like a consistent human being right and it's um yeah. there's this really interesting i haven't watched like a behind the scenes on a tv show in years so it's Battlestar. they had um like a day in the life of the Battlestar writers and at one point the entire cast comes in one at a time and complains about like I, I don't think I would have put my hand on that table there. You've got me putting my hand on the table in the script. I, you know, I've been playing this role for three years. I don't do that. And so just the idea that, you know, Sorkin probably wasn't listening to um, ideas from the cast as much as he should have. So that they still were able to do this in such a short amount of time, too. Like, it, we're leaps and bounds from uh, the performances in the for, in the pilot for most of the cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, even, that's, even the dumb, have... terrible stuff, just... It's acted much better. <laughs> uh. Now, would either of you believed by the fifth episode, or fourth episode, I would have had you to the point of it's just like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just Sork and it's fun. <laughs> I think I... We're, we're starting to get a... Sorkholm syndrome. Oh, that was it's terrible. Stockholm. Oh. Yes, Sorkholm syndrome is good. Sorkholm. I actually um, like that. Sorkholm syndrome. Um, no, it's. I don't know if it's necessarily fine that I'm like fine with it in a vacuum, but I'm like, well, I was the one who proposed this show. We've got what, like, eighteen more episodes <laughs> to do. I gotta learn to live with it. So here we go. Well, but I like. And, that's that's. I think kind of at the heart of like why this show is so fascinating is that like on its face it's so bad and dumb but there is something just so like enchanting about it like it's and and it's like it, a lot of that is the acting it's like these people are really like these actors are really making it work uh even though it, it is terrible <laughs> it, it's also like so I, I, I still admit that I haven't seen a lot of other his other work. I did try watching a little bit of The West Wing, and it's just, it's not doing anything for me. I don't, I don't want to watch more. But it is, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. It's a very unfiltered version of Sorkin. Like, like if, if the social network is Sorkin being run through a really strong director who is going to tell him, like, no, this morality shit is stupid, I'm throwing this whole page out, I will get the fuck out of my office. And the West Wing is like, Sorkin, but a little stronger dose. This is like the maximum amount of Sorkin you can put in a glass before it, like, breaks. <laughs> this is the... Yes. And then the newsroom Doctor recommended in a better glass. The glass is... Because uh, <laughs> he figured it's... out, you know, the uh, constraints to, to how he can do his thing. Um, 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 I've heard people say the newsroom has its moments. I, I've seen exactly two clips from it. One of them is this clip 
Okay, so one of them is the clip of the of them like talking about this mother who was being accused of having murdered her child, and them like deconstructing how the um the interviewer was like manipulating people. Which I thought was actually a pretty interesting clip. The other clip is unfortunately the scene where the reporters tell the pilot that Osama bin Laden got shot, which is one of the funniest God. clips on the entire internet. Uh, that one is second only to the scene where uh, where Jeff Bridges shouts, "You're a goddamn newsman, and if anyone says otherwise, I'll punch him in the mouth," which is just like <laughs> such a dumb. Sh- I don't even know what that means, but it's so like he delivers it with so much enthusiasm. Uh, it's Sorkin's ideal white man. Uh, speaking of speaking of Sorkin's ideal man, uh, here's something I wanted to bring up about this episode, but was kind of waiting until we I wanted to wait until we finished uh, like the plot review. This episode is like a perfect case study in toxic masculinity like there is so much little shit going on in this episode of like like shining a light on like like little things about like perceived masculinity like so uh matt finds out okay so matt finds out about the baseball player guy and he's like the whole rest of the episode they're just making fun of him for how bad of a baseball player he is like He's a he's a pitcher, but he signed a bat, and so they're like making fun of that because he's like you know he's trying to be something he isn't, and then like they keep making fun of like how bad his all his stats are, and then like Matt is like very obviously threatened by him being a like an athlete and being more manly than him, and then there's like the bit with. Um, like there is it's almost like a throwaway conversation when they're introducing um the vanity fair um writer to danny where it's like matt or no it's matt and danny talking about it afterwards and they're like discussing how danny is threatened by her because her readers are worth more than his watchers you know it's like oh you're he's not a real man because this woman has uh, more valuable more ad valuable uh consumers i think about um i don't know did i just lose it about danny and yeah that that he's so um concerned about uh possessive of the show i guess right and Mm -hmm. you know we see it (laughs) in how he talks with jordan um he's only been there for three weeks right like he it's never explained why he's able to transition from uh being a film director to running a live television show immediately other than he used to help judd hirsch do it four years before like i mean a year later i can remember the technical aspects of the job but I probably shouldn't be, like, doing it, right? Like, I remember when I'd go into my old video store and I'd see they were still using the same OS or whatever the fuck those things were called. Um, PLS (laughs) systems, right? But I could go over and use it 
but I shouldn't do that. Like, even if I was, you know, helping or something, I shouldn't do that. I don't have this familiarity with the skills. Yet, Danny's supposed to know all this shit, like, right away. So, we have not explored his coke weekend. Was that him getting coked up and, like, doing a bunch of research into the television (laughs) industry? Because... I tried watching, or I did watch, uh, Becker, which was Ted Danson's most successful post-Cheers traditional sitcom thing, and he's a doctor, and a big deal is that he goes home every night and he just reads medical journals all the time, and that's why he he's mm-hmm. like, you know, Dr. House, right? The Dr. Yeah. House of Bronx. Um, yeah, Danny needs to be doing that all the time. Right, because he knows so much about the business. He knows just all of it. I mean, so I've I've not worked directly in TV, but I know people who have. And so, if this was a normal TV show, there is a point where if you're like directing an episode or even like the showrunner, where things kind of move on their own, like. Vince Gilligan can come in and direct an episode of, like, season seven of The X-Files, and basically it amounts to to um, the the costuming director going, okay, here's this, like, Dan Olson makes this point in one of his Fifty Shades videos, you know, here's the stuff the characters wear in this scene. In the, like, just in general, which one do you think is right for this scene? And things start running. That would be true for a normal TV show, but with a live show, all of that is so completely out of whack that I don't know if you could just jump right in so i agree with you yeah i want so what i want is a just the whole rewrite the whole series and it's just about how the uh the guy who's operating the like the camera room operator guy and him having to deal with everyone else's bullshit because if anyone like he's clearly like actually running the show (laughs) like he's the he directed this episode timothy So that's why he's not uh, that's that funny. much until the end, and then he gets like some action shots. But he also really shows off the set with the Tom and uh, Matthew Perry arc, where just there's tons of walking shots this episode because, you know, everybody wants to see the $25 million set or whatever. So even the guy who's pretending to be the guy who holds the whole thing together is like the best advocate for this show (laughs) yeah and i mean like it's got a weird kind of heart to it like matthew perry's trying really hard like he never tries this hard in uh, any of his subsequent series yeah i don't know you're right i don't know what else he's been in though he was matthew perry is from friends yeah that's what i was thinking that might be why i'm sort of instantly like suspicious of him well (laughs) Yeah, let's see. He he did Mr. I just Sunshine, don't. and then he did something called Go On, and then I guess The Odd Couple was on for multiple years, but I, that one I couldn't even do an episode of. Oh my god, it was. Yeah. Um, but he... Yeah, I've never really liked Friends, so I don't know. Yeah, uh, he... Okay. In the, in the 80s, he was on a Canadian TV show called... Oh, crap. It, was, it wasn't actually a Canadian TV show. I just got him confused with Jerry Oak, uh, my secret identity guy. Matthew Perry was on one of the first Fox shows as a teenager who dies. Or no, his ghost from the future 
comes to the present to like help him as a teenager and then it got changed by the next season yeah it was like quantum leap two years before quantum leap and with ghosts but so like i knew him from that because okay i I like i like matthew perry (laughs) like (laughs) there's a birds of america uh blu-ray in germany that i'm just kind of like you know, if I ever watch it again, I do want to watch it again on Blu-ray. Like, I, Ben Foster's in it. Like, I like it. So, you know, for him to... And he was the only... He was the only one after Friends who, like, tried to do anything new. Like, Joey just did his thing. Uh, Courtney Cox and Jennifer Aniston were doing movies. David Schwimmer, I think he'd given up pretending he was doing movies but he was gonna like direct or something so matthew perry was the only one who was like yeah i think i'm gonna you know go be martin sheen or whatever so why are we on this tangent i'm sorry i don't know i'm just talking about how good the actors are yeah and how even matthew perry's trying okay uh so the last thing i will will say about the acting is i don't like bradley whitford yet and I feel very weird about it. Like he's a well, dick. Yeah, he hasn't. He, he, he has doesn't kind of really a dick. have. He, Danny hasn't really had much of a plot yet. Like he's just sort of, kind of exists as a foil for Matt at this point. And yeah. Yeah. So he hasn't done anything likable yet. Now, I guess my next question is: Does that mean if I go back and rewatch West Wing? Josh Lyman's gonna be too big of a dick. Oh, oh no! Uh, yes, uh, Josh Lyman is the villain of the West Wing. Um, if you go back and watch it, Much, he's a monster. Uh, I and mean, if you go back and watch it, every time he talks, you're just gonna hear him saying, "I would have voted for Obama three times if I could have." Okay, um, so that's him, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's him. him. He's in, <laughs> that's okay. Him. Which, if you assume that his character in Studio 60 is actually his character from Get Out, it's going to make the show a lot more interesting. Oh, yeah, he's just, like, <laughs> he's just, like, grooming Simon so that he can invite him to his, uh, his creepy mansion uh, one weekend and just steal his body. Mm-hmm. I love, I loved Get Out, but now you're just making me wish Amanda Peet had been the uh, mom. Like, I feel like they added some real texture to it. No spoilers. But, uh, sadly, I guess Jordan Peele is not a Studio 60 fan. I mean, I I do kind of... There is a part of me that wants to see Sarah Paulson play, um, the Allison Williams role. But I think she might be a little too old for it. Given that she's supposed to be, what, like, 20-something? I need to rewatch that. I mean, it's Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. It is Sarah Paulson. She can do it. She can do whatever she wants. Uh, so yeah, I think that's about all we got on uh, on the West Coast delay. What, what uh, is got, our next episode? Wait, wait. wait I've got, got one else? more. Uh, I've got one more note. I don't really have anything to say about it other than fuck Aaron Sorkin. Uh, but in in the uh, in the scene where they like have their little uh, their first like get together to talk about like what they're going to do when they find out that the that the bit has been uh plagiarized uh they they're talking about how bad it is and 
I think it's the Vanity Fair writer. I, she's. So, I think it's her. But Christine somebody Murphy. says, yeah, somebody says, uh, accusing a writer of plagiarism is as bad as uh, accusing them of um, sexual harassment, and it's just like, fuck so, you. Here's the thing. All right, this is from 2005. There had been famous. We we weren't quite at like not exactly plagiarism, but just like lots of lying and writing. Like that was like another year away. But there had been like scandals in writing about plagiarism going back uh, at yeah, least. I, I have years. this. I have this vague memory in my head of like this kind of famous book on the Civil War turning out to have been largely plagiarized? Yeah, Did I, I make that up? I don't think so. I don't know. But there's also... Um, I actually presented on it in a class, so I should remember that one. But the example I re remember is like some famous short story writer who got busted because he, like plagiarized too obvious of a story and called it an homage and you're reading it and like there's no internal logic because of the stuff he pulled over from the other one and mm -hmm. that was like part of the conversation at that point with writers so I feel like Sorkin it, it's some more of the idealism but it's just not knowing how to communicate it in a way to even fit Studio 60's you know scale the passions kind of because he's got to tell himself that he believes that like he's got to you know he can't be one of the bad guys in the WGA who's ripped off other writers or something right like right he's be one of those bad guys who tries to get the who tries to get the WGA shut down and steals credit you know but it's just really yeah. like disgusting in this episode where where a character is like like Matt is like on his way to like sexually harass Harriet uh, before he gets interrupted by uh, a comedy suit of armor and <laughs> and then it's like ooh being a plagiarist is as bad as that uh, but we've already but you're supposed to like the guy who does that. It's, uh, it's bad. Why not it's both? Bad. It's Why bad. don't I do it's just both? It's all bad. It's all bad. I feel like the joke. I, I feel like that line's intended to be something of a joke, but honestly, and I know murder is worse, but it would land better with murder. Oh yeah, I when oh, like, I would. I thought that that's what it was gonna be. I forgot the sexual harassment thing. Like, if it all like. If it was murder, you would understand it was a joke. But because sexual exactly. harassment, and especially like at the at the time, like this is you know this is well, well, well before like Me Too and like like this is this is like the time in Hollywood where basically everyone like anyone who has any power is a sex pest and it's a big open secret. Uh, so like it's like kind of un like if you know anything about the industry it's kind of understood that actually being is like being a sex pest means nothing so like trying it's to compare so it to uh like trying to use that as a like 
comparison to a ser like a, a thing that would actually affect your career like i don't know it just doesn't it doesn't work at all no it's, it's just it, it doesn't sit right now it, yeah it's, it's, it's sorkin being cravenly um well he's virtue signaling but like in a really <laughs> in a really weird way too when you think about he's got a show that's all about secrets coming out and he's just like nah it'll be fine like, there aren't any secrets. Like, I didn't get busted at the airport. There's a conspiracy theory that it was because my dealer sold me out to George Bush. Like, no. What? Nothing ever comes out. No, no I don't, I don't want to know. I, conspiracy <laughs> yeah. theories aren't fun anymore. Some other time. We're already running long. Uh, yeah. We'll put a pin in that yeah. one for a future We'll put episode. a pin in that. Well, our, future, our next episode is entitled The Long Lead Story. Which is were we talking about? How that's yep, not something yep. that writers yeah. say. Well, we'll and finally well, find it, out what a long lead is. It, it <laughs> is something they say in journalism, but we don't know that Danny went to journalism school yet, so he doesn't. And but. the plot, the the uh, the plot description on the DVD set is stones thrown at the glass house. Journalist Martha O'Dell wants the dish on Matt and Harriet. That's it. We already talked about whoever writes those hates the show. We did. We did when we decided that this is what we were gonna. Okay. We, well, we didn't. We didn't get to read them for the first for the first two episodes. So the description for the first two episodes, the pilot is mad as hell. An on-air diatribe puts NBS in damage control mode and puts two ex-staffers in charge. And the description for the cold open is no sweat, fellas. Just be sure your first show, just five days away, is a smash. Plus, Jordan won't kill a controversial sketch. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if uh, if these descriptions are putting the best foot forward. Okay, so last thing: um, when we get done, will we have enough of the des those descriptions to program a machine learning thing to kick out a second season? I wonder. I'll, I'll see what I'll I can start arrange. Working on that. Okay. Right. Yeah, I, I think I can throw something together. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until uh, until the long lead story. That was our show. I don't know if we've ever come up with an official sign off. No. Nah. Uh, um, eh. Good night, everyone. <laughs>